cliffcentral.com. How's that, Prof? How's hey, that for prof. an intro? Sorry. Phew, I was um I was thinking about witches and there was a time <laughs> I was, I mean no but but seriously there was a there was a time when they were burning people yeah. up in the north. Yeah, in um, Popo. Yeah. Yep. For 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 being witches mm. and um it was when I was doing national service. Mm. I like to drive around in a yellow bucky. <sighs> and um you know, I would drive through the area and 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 it so yeah. I, I, hasn't happened for a while, thank goodness. But I mean, there was a time. So we're talking in the sort of mid eighties, uh, mid to late eighties. They were burning people who were suspected witches in the villages. Yeah, it happens. Your voice is so calming already, <laughs> and and the fact your shirt says normal. I'm just at ease uh, over I, here. I love I love Prof uh, Zabo's shirt. It says <laughs> it's normal. Medi- it's my medication. It's, it's just kicked in. All right, so let's talk, Prof, because it's good to see you again, and any excuse to get you on the show is uh, is always welcome. Thank you. Uh, we were talking about just <clears throat> season four. Oh, the, the 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 sponsor doesn't like to talk about seasons. Let's call them tranches. Well, it's the fourth tranche. <laughs> this, is, this is the fourth set it of is, episodes no, it is. that it you're is. doing. I mean, we do talk of seasons. What's amazing about this, and I do have to mention, you know, our, our thanks to um, Adcock Ingram, sponsors of Brave, because these guys have got the 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 cop to know when they're doing amazing work. You know, a lot of businesses they get involved in what they think are good community projects or interesting information or content creation sure. or whatever. Yeah. This is, and it started off and it's changed a little bit along the way, but it started off as a place where professionals could yeah. talk about the most interesting things in psychiatry, yes. the leading edge. And it's become that plus because now we've got a whole bunch of episodes on a range of topics that yeah. affect everybody. Yeah. And I think that people are fascinated by it because Mental health has become the thing that everyone talks about, right? Well, it's certainly having its moment. Yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, one has to be so wary of that because at the end of the day, we have fads and suddenly everybody gets preoccupied with something and it's the new mm. thing. Mm. It, it's not a new thing. I mean, you know, the, one of the bylines of the, of the, of the series is always no health without mental health. And I think that's something yeah. we've always understood, certainly as psychiatrists and mental health professionals, and I include psychologists and others who are associated with uh, uh, mental health. So it's always been an obvious, because at the end of the day, if you don't have your mental health, but by the same token, if you don't have your physical health, but the two go together, you, they can't, do go kind together. Of, you can't kind of separate them. And there's so many psychological aspects to physical illness as well, um, which I don't necessarily think are fully addressed or fully understood by the clinicians who treat their patients. And I think in medicine, we have to watch out for the more siloed approach where you literally deal with what you know, and you're not looking at the whole patient. Whereas with psychiatry, because we're a biopsychosocial and increasingly spiritual discipline, we're looking at the whole patient. And, and, and one of the things I find, which is, it's good that I can do it, but it's also quite sad for me is that I'm often the one who the patient comes to see and I'm busy interpreting everything. I'm saying, what did this one say? What did that one say? How does it all fit together? Why didn't you ask that question? But mm. this is your concern. And I'm thinking I'm acting as like the patient's friend 
in a sense. You you said something now which is quite controversial, increasingly spiritual. Yes. What, when you describe the, the role of psychiatry, what do you mean? Well, I think that we're beginning... Because that makes a lot of people nervous. They go, ooh. No, 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 no. You mustn't confuse spirituality and religion because I think that's where you're potentially going. Even so. I yep. mean, what, I'm, what makes me alarm, my alarm bells go off, is that um, I start thinking, ooh, woo-woo, no, no, bells no. and no. crystals and bullshit. No, no, no. Well... To some that might be bullshit. To yeah. others that might be, <laughs> for you. You know, for some that might be it. No, I think mm. that, you know, spirituality is, 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 is not something that you, at the click of a finger, you become spiritual. Yeah. Spirituality is about growth. Mm. It's about looking inward, mm. reaching outward. And I think that the tree symbolizes that very nicely because mm. you've got the roots and you've got the branches and the leaves mm. and there's pruning that takes place, which enables it to flourish. So I think spirituality is actually a, a, a process. And I mean, in quite a few of the episodes, we've done episodes previously on religion, uh, the one specifically we did, which was on palliative care, which was mm. assistance with dying. And mm. um, how, do you, how do you prepare yourself for death at the mm. end of the day? And I think the fundamental answer to that, if you can call it an answer, was live a full life. Because I think a life well lived is the best preparation for death, ultimately. You know, you might want to hold on to it, or you may be able to say, I've had a good life. I've lived well. All right. No need to uh, start depressing us first thing. No, 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 no. Hey, listen, about death. You know, and I, and I think that's interesting, <laughs> because at the end of the day, just because we talk about death, I mean, it's, death is a fact of life. No, no, I know. I, there's so many subjects here, so let's get to that one at the end. Where it's uh, appropriate. Oh, at the end. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's, that's where it all ends. I'm for sorry, all of us. I'm, I'm the one now who's going to try and keep things in their opposite place. Okay, so, Prof. Yes. Let's start off with the, the first two episodes, which you've already done. There's one coming out today, which I think, yeah, and bullying, which is a big, yeah. big subject. Yeah. And bullying has changed, right? Because now the bullying follows you home on your phone. Yes. Bullying is something that adults do to each other. Yes. Bullying it's, is something that happens in the corporate world. Bullying yeah. is something that happens in relationships. Yeah. It's not just what we used to think kids in the play on the playground being mean to each other at school. Yeah. So, you know, one of the issues I have, and it comes up, I think what's really interesting for me is how many themes are moving through the episodes that I'm picking up on where I'm actually referencing previous guests or guests to come. So mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting in terms of how that's happening. I just nearly bullied the microphone. Um, (laughs) Very aggressive. (laughs) Microphone abuse. Um, You know, I think one has to be careful with the use of terms because at the end of the day, if you use a term too freely, too loosely, I think it loses its meaning. Mm. Trauma is another such word. And I do reference that when I speak about trauma. A lot of psychiatric terms. Depression, yes. trauma, yes. anxiety. Yes. People are overusing these. They've come to mean such a wide selection of things that sure. they no longer mean anything. Sure. Well, I think that's the question. What do you mean when you use that term? Because only once I understand what you mean, can I actually address what it is you're conveying mm-hmm. to me? So I need to understand what you understand when you use that term. So bullying is pervasive, it seems to me, if one looks at these statistics. Um but beyond that, you know, as you said, it's it's kind of morphed and social media. And again, that's another theme that comes through constantly in all of the episodes. It always kind of crops up somewhere, this yeah. whole issue with social media. And what you've mentioned is very important. Back in the old days, you'd go to school and the bully would be waiting for you in the playground. Mm. And your decision was, mm. do I hit him first or do I walk the other way? So now 
it's with you all the time. And I think one of the points that the guests made on, on, on the episode is that it doesn't take a break. Mm. You know, school holidays mm. used to be a time where that's it. There was no school. It's with you now. Mm. And it's, it's, it's not just individuals. It's packs, the pack mentality where they, you know, people will converge on, 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 on one person or ignore. Cause remember, it's not just about what you say. It's about what you don't say. Sure. And so I think that bullying is, is, is something which has certainly morphed and we're seeing it. I, th- I think we're describing it. I don't think anything, you know, in, in the workplace, what's really changed? I mean, there was always the difficult boss. There were always envious colleagues. There were always people who liked you or didn't. I- like do, you, you. do you think, I'm going to let LeBang and Michael ask you some yes. questions too, because mm. they've got lots of them, but do you think we've actually become so soft that we're finding problems? And, and a lot of people talk about the, the, the manual of diagnostic, what is it called? Your, diagnostic and statistical manual of mental go. disorders version five, which now has a text revision. Yeah. The American Psychiatric Association has a habit of doing that. So what it means is everybody has to go out and buy the next version. It's a money making. So you gotta, you gotta milk it. <coughs> but I know the, I know the CEO of the APA and I've never actually said but, to him, but Saul, the, what are you doing? This book has gone from being this thick to being this thick. And that's what we've added 253 yeah, yeah. different mental conditions that weren't there 15 years <laughs> I ago. I know. I mean, that, are we that, getting yeah. worse or are they discovering more or? You know what? It's that the spectrum of normality is shrinking if we're not careful. And then eventually... But Prof, this is sick. This is the real sickness. I think the human condition is an imperfect one. Well, the human condition incorporates suffering. And unless you suffer, and I'm not saying that one should suffer, I'm not promoting suffering, Mm -hmm. but that is where the growth comes, when you're faced with challenges. And I think that we are living in an era where there is an increasing emphasis on the victim. And victimhood. And so it's not good. No. Well, I, I think again, you know, in, in terms of how frequently we use terms, if everybody's a victim, then nobody's a victim. And I think the real concern that I have there is that the real hardcore sufferers get lost in the noise yeah. mm. and you lose the signal. And so for me, that is always the, 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 the concern. And so we certainly do live in a time and maybe it's the pendulum swinging from sort of hardcore, you know, you know, get on with it to, Oh my word, let me hear all about it. So I think that it's, 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 it'll probably find its way back to the middle because you cannot indefinitely sustain everybody's a victim. At some point, you know, you have to move beyond that. And again, the big issue for me is I don't want to lose the people who really who need my actually assistance. actually suffering, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, and, and again, that's another theme that, that, that comes through is that those are the people that I empathize with. Those are the ones that I want to access. Those are the ones that I want to, to help. Mm. And so we, I suppose we have to get to a stage where we start to differentiate how you're experiencing things, what you actually need, because not everybody needs to come and see a psychiatrist, thankfully. Um, otherwise, you know, well, there aren't enough psychiatrists. And we might go bankrupt. <laughs> <laughs> well, there aren't enough psychiatrists or mental health professionals. And so I think. The other concern I have is that, is, is, is that it becomes a tick box thing. Mm. So we provide mental health uh, support for our staff. I don't know exactly what that means, but it looks good. And so I think there's a kind of a buzzword and, you know, wellness, employee wellness, yeah. et cetera, which is important. It's very important. And so I, I think 
you know, you must understand I'm, I'm not denigrating or diminishing. I'm just saying, let's put everything in its place and let's get to that point where things are more balanced. And I think that's a word that I use frequently is, 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 is balance at the end of the day. But it is also normal as per your t-shirt yes. for, pe- <laughs> for people to suffer, yes. for people to be enraged. Absolutely. For people to be jealous. Sure. For people to be sad. Yes. For people to be heavily <laughs> depressed. Mm. But being depressed after you lose someone who you care about is normal. normal. You're allowed yes. to. Yeah. And we speak about that. Feeling yeah. euphoria for someone you love is normal. normal. Mm. Absolutely. And everything in between is part of the human experience. Sure. We've started to take normal human experiences and medicalize them and prescribe medicine for them. I think mm. you've, you've, you've hit on another theme that comes through is the is the medicalization of normal human experience sure. and where everything becomes a disorder. So coming back to what you were saying about the DSM, you know, where were all these conditions before? Did they not exist? Prof, uh, for example, I know if I were at school now, I would have been diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactive mm. disorder or whatever it might have been. I probably did have Something. it then, yes. but it wasn't in there yet. Yeah. And you know, that's Luckily, I'm old enough to escape having been put on pills because yes. mm. that's what most parents do because they get told by professionals this yeah. is what you need yeah. to do. Yeah. You need to numb your child's mind so that it can be a, 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 attentive in class or just at least not a problem for the teacher or for them as sure. parents. Sure. I, I remember when I ran the adolescent unit <clears throat> at Tara, I would spend my time – and remember, now, Tara, the adolescent inpatient unit was – dealing with amongst the most disturbed adolescents in our area and sometimes nationally, I would spend most of my, not most of my time, but one of my things was taking kids off medication because mm. I wanted to see them as they were in mm. a different setting. Yeah. Mm. And I think that was always fascinating for me because at the end of the day, you were looking at context mm. and suddenly they were in an environment where there was routine, there was structure, there was care, there were boundaries. People were listening to you. People were engaging with you. Mm. And these kids very often settled with no medication. Mm. Bad parenting. Well, you know, without pointing fingers and no, being judgmental. I'll do it. Bad, okay, you, can, you can do it. You can say it. But yes. Um, and, you know, very often I would be sitting in ward rounds and there was a recurring question that I asked, where's the father? Where's the father? Mm. You know, and, and I mean, all the cases that were presented, these were stories where I would kind of sit and I'd be looking at the staff and saying, can you hear this? Mm. This is something. Mm. Where's the father? And so for me, that was a, a, a kind of an a awareness that, that, that grew through that is the role of fathers, absent fathers, mm. missing fathers, or mm. fathers who are present, who are not Actively engaged, sure. And I think we, I think we're seeing a shift in society where you know it's it's okay for men to be much more involved in the home mm-hmm. with their kids. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good thing. I understand that you've just recently got engaged. Yes. Oh, congrats there uh, from Prof Zabo. Flex. That's <laughs> very nice. No, I heard a rumor in the passage <laughs> where one tends to hear these things. So uh, yes, fatherhood. You know, fatherhood will come your way, and I think mm-hmm. that it's well, hopefully, if that's what you want. Um, and I think it's important that men embrace uh, their role as fathers, and it goes beyond being checkbooks. Sure. And uh, and and so there's this whole shift, I think, in society towards that. I'm I'm not saying it's 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 pervasive, but I certainly see it. And so at the end of the day, 
the idea of medication as the solution to everything. I think we need to be a little bit wary. Mm. Um, I was reading the other day, Prof, and you can probably break it down into into further diagnostics. But I was talking about how when a baby's born, it's so important for a father and a mother to have flesh on flesh contact in yes. the first like two, three weeks because it creates something for the baby. Well, I, you know, I, 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 I wouldn't regard myself as an expert in that, but I think intuitively it makes a lot of sense. Well, it seems definitely. right. It seems yeah, right. Definitely. And I think it, it starts even earlier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. While the, in, while the baby's still inside your in belly, the the, they can already hear the voices around the mother's, um, belly constantly. So when the baby is born, they automatically are linked to the father just from hearing the voice. That's why they always say you must sing to your child when they're in the belly, talk to the child. It's real. It's literally, I've recorded tons of, of episodes on this very thing on my show as well. It's fascinating. No, no, it's I, fascinating. Think, I, I think there's something in it. And I think it goes back mm. even further because they speak about intergenerational issues that you pass on, mm. yeah. you know, without even realizing it's kind of embedded. In. Sure. And so, you know, I, I, I think that is very important to have the bonding experience. Mm. And I think that is one of the issues, you know, there's a, there's a project, uh, uh, out, out there, which looks at, um, Locations around the world where there are uh, people who live to good old ages. Mm. And one of the issues is they engage in activities that are bonding and binding. And I think that this is another theme that comes through is this issue of connectedness that uh, is that we're kind of losing in the modern world, connecting with people in our immediate circle, connecting with people beyond in terms of our communities. And, 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 and that is something we need to look at because again, one of the themes that comes through are, are what we call societal determinants of health. What is going on in society? You know, we have a, we have a highly sophisticated modern age, which has never been more sick. Sure. So, you know, I mean, you really have to what's think. That, of, what's that all about? Because well, you can't tell me like medical science has moved backwards. No, no, medical science hasn't moved backwards, but has humanity moved forward? Forward, yeah. But, but I think people have all the information at their fingertips now to know how to not live stupidly and unhealthily. Well, that's just information. Yeah, but they don't implement it. Correct. So, I mean, it, yeah. you know, uh, at what point does information become real knowledge? And that's when I think you take the information and you apply it to yourself and you apply it beyond. And so we live in an information-driven age. So there's lots of information out there. What the hell does it mean? Hmm. You know, uh, I think one of the other themes, you talk about modernization and how we're doing artificial intelligence. Hmm. I mean, there's a can of what, what do you think will, will start happening to the human population when AI starts raising the kids, like the AI becomes helpers and that and all the oh. caretakers, etc. Well, yeah, what do you think? I don't see that as a parent, you should ever allow that. I mean, we've just been speaking about bonding and binding. Mm-hmm. So that's completely contrary wow. to, 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 to what is inherently human. Mm. Once you start doing that, you're breaking down one of the fundamental relationships. And often when you work with, with patients who are traumatized or patients who've had difficulties, it's those what I call core relationships that have been disrupted, the parent-child relationship. Mm-hmm. Because you need to understand, and well, that's my understanding anyway, so I don't speak for the discipline, but adult psychopathology begins in childhood. Sure, mm-hmm. sure. You know, so in, in, in a strange way, child and adolescent psychiatry was always like the poor cousin of psychiatry, underfunded, under-resourced, mm. not really thought of uh, uh, in the way because all the big advances were taking place in adult psychiatry, etc. But in reality, 
Child and adolescent psychiatry <clears throat> is the bedrock. Well, we, we were talking just now, Prof, and, and maybe you can help us understand this about this lunatic. Um, and I don't know if that word is even, you can uh, allow You can to use, use it. You can use the word lunatic. You can use, you can use the word um, mad. I do. Mad. Okay, it's beyond madness. It's beyond madness. I mean, sure. <laughs> so you, you're not uh, sanitizing this just no. because you're worried about offending people. I mean, right. we're talking about stuff that maybe should offend some people. Yeah. Um, this guy is a child rapist and a and a and a real. Are you talking about Ackerman? Yes. Yeah. What, we what, were talking about him on yesterday's. Uh, uh, okay. So what's recording. your what's your feeling? Because we, as people who are what sort of normal, we we struggle to understand why yeah. someone would think like this. How they mm. get to be like that? You talked about the psychopathology of of adults. Yeah. Where do people start to go horribly wrong? Sure, that's a hell of a question. Because at the end of the day. We, <laughs> if we actually understood that, we would potentially we'd eliminate it. Stop it. Sure. Eliminate it. Sure. And then we'd be living in a highly sanitized world, and I'm not sure what we would be. So I think we've got to be careful because then we're getting mm. into eugenics, you know, and yeah. uh, I, we don't want to go there. But I think that the, the judge at some point, because I remember actually reading a newspaper report, called him a devious predator. Sure. So I think that, you know, that kind of sums it up. Your question is, where does that come from? Yeah. Well, the truth of the matter is I've never spoken to the man. I don't know the man. And sure. one would, would, it, it would be fascinating to understand what is the journey that brought him to the point where he regarded this as okay. Sure. Because I think at, at, at some point during the trial, he was kind of saying, no, but he thought he was doing the boys a favor. You know, he was actually because they were poor, they needed money. So he was like the friendly uncle who was stepping in to, 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 um, care for them in that sense. And so that was his perception of, of what he was doing or his rationalization. Mm. So I think, you know, devious predator probably captures it very well. He's been found guilty as, 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 as I've understood the judgment yesterday. And, um, what more is there to say? You know, at the end of the day, he's a criminal and he will be, you know, subject to the criminal justice system and uh, all that goes with it. Yeah. Didn't we read in the article that a psychiatrist, no psychiatrist wants to uh, take him on or? Uh, yeah, they, yeah. They, no they one wants to do him. a proper evaluation and sit mm. down and figure him out. Well, I think that there would be two aspects to that. Uh, the one is who would want to take him on necessarily therapeutically? if that is even possible. Mm. Uh, but I think the other issue is the extent to which he committed crimes uh, whilst mentally ill, in which yeah. case he would be subject to a forensic assessment. So one would need to determine responsibility, the capacity for knowing right from wrong and acting in accordance oh. with that. Mm. So I think that um, very often uh, these kinds of assessments will take place where the judge or potentially the defendant's uh, a legal team say, listen, you know, my client was uh, unwell at the time and the judge will look at the uh, merits of that and, 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 and may or may not refer the uh, uh, perpetrator or defendant for onward assessment to determine, okay, was the individual psychiatrically ill at the time that they committed the offense, which would then, of course, create a whole different pathway for the individual. Instead of going to, to, to prison, they would go to a psychiatric facility where they mm. would be there for an indefinite period of time receiving treatment and care. Okay. I, I didn't look at it that way. I looked at it like... Nobody in wants a negative to. manner, but I, I now see it from the way where it can take a different route if someone mm. takes on the case. You see, I think as a psychiatrist, you'll see who's in front of you. Yeah. You know, I don't think you make that call because you don't know the person. Sure. And so it's for you to determine what is going on and what you think may be a, 
appropriate, which may come down to this guy is what he is. Well, Congo Chris says, and maybe your comments on this, uh, nine out of ten times you'll find these monsters were once victims of other monsters. I think that that's something that we actually discuss in the podcast on childhood sexual abuse, which is coming out. I don't want to, I don't want to listen to that one. And uh, Wait, you going to upset you too much? Absolutely. Like 100%. Like those numbers are already just so scary. There's some shows that I've done where I just read out the numbers and I'm like, what the hell? And after they recorded it, uh, your producer, Dory, was, she was like visibly shook. She was about to like fall because she was just, yo, she couldn't believe what she had just heard. So I, I'm not really, I don't know if I've got the balls to like listen to that one. <laughs> well, uh, I'm, I'm chuckling, but the truth of the matter is, cause you said balls. Um, but the <laughs> truth of the matter is that, uh, it's not easy content. Mm-hmm. And I think that, you know, the podcast is not about easy content. Yeah. It's about, the hard things that are real that we have to look at, that we have to understand and we have to contend with. But coming back to Congo, Chris, I think was the person who wrote in. Um, I had discussed that issue actually on the podcast yesterday because there, there are those who were, who were victims who become perpetrators. Luke, Luke Lamprecht had said to me yesterday, he said, he thinks that's the minority of cases, not nine out of 10. He's maybe talking one out of 10. But I think the importance of that speaks to the importance and necessity of early intervention for the victim. Because if there is a trajectory for certain victims to become perpetrators, Mm -hmm. if they were not adequately understood and, 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 and treated, as youngsters, mm. then that is a potential risk. So yes, so Congo Chris is not wrong in terms of his understanding that perpetrators might themselves have been victims. Look, the one thing for sure that you can go back is I am sure that most of the perpetrators were in some way experiencing or experienced adverse childhood uh, uh, a phenomena. Their childhoods were probably not the average. Um, but, you know, ag- again, until you get into that population and you really start to explore it, all I can say is that the concern about going from victim to perpetrator is a real one. Mm. It does happen. There's actually South African data that looks at that. Um, but Luke Lamprecht, who's an expert in the area, said that's the minority. But although it's the minority, if you can rescue those and treat those, then you've got that many fewer perpetrators. Prof, you've covered a lot of, of really interesting subjects over the, the past few episodes and there's so many still to come. I yes. mean, I don't even know where to begin. But well, you, last week's was, cause you mentioned the first two. Alco- last week's alcohol. Was alcohol yes. Right. So, I mean, the 12 step program, which yes. people all over the world think is the best way to get off of something. Yes. And it's interesting because addiction is a whole other discussion. Oh. Is there such a thing as an addictive personality? Mm. We were told that. You know, years ago. Oh, no, no, no. My family all are addicted to something. Yeah, I'm careful of this. I have an addictive Addictive personality. There you go. There's another word. So we've done bullying. We've done trauma. We've done depression. Addiction. Mm. Mm. I mean, if you look at the DSM-5 TR, which I haven't got, I'll stick with DSM-5. I'm not going to purchase another copy and enrich the APA. When you look under uh, addictions per se, there's only one non-substance addiction that's in the DSM, and that's gambling. Oh. So that's the only one. But Mm -hmm. we've been having a lot of discussions around pornography. Uh And pornography has raised its head 
Huh, I've got to be careful how you interpret hey, that hey, one. Hey, 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 slow yeah, down, no, bro. No, no, no. Okay, you, you said balls. <laughs> now I'm talking about a head that gets raised. Yeah. Someone has to be... <laughs> this, is, this is turning into a sexually speaking program. Um, episode. So the issue of pornography has, has kind of come up. And, and we've done an episode on, on, on sexual health and psychiatry. And the one we were doing on, on childhood sexual abuse. And you know... We were speaking about pornography. I was raising the issue how younger folk are being exposed mm. online. And again, there comes social media. Yeah. So mm. social media comes back into the uh, arena. And what they're being exposed to is maybe their first exposure to sex. Yeah. And they are seeing it in a certain light. And for them, this is how it's understood. So people are objectified. They're there to be used. And so the link between pornography, if you go to the Jelly Beans website, they've got two stark facts. One in three South African kids are sexually abused before the age of 18, which I get into with uh, uh, Edit, who's the uh, uh, director. Um, and they say one in 10 uh, learners have been exposed to pornography on a regular basis, something along mm, those lines. Mm, mm. And I said to, to, to Edith, I said, but uh, you're linking the two. And then we started to get into the link between pornography, childhood sexual abuse, and just what pornography is doing to how younger people understand human sexuality. <sighs> It's it's actually very messy and I'm a little bit triggered right now. I don't know if that's the right word. Um, yeah. but literally just two weeks ago, um, my kid goes on the internet and you know there's always these pop-ups mm, like right. click here to do the survey and there's always this huge bum there looking all shiny or some nice big yeah. boobs and there's always some way to oh, like wow. rope you in. My son is nine years old. He's just using his tablet for right. school purposes, going onto Google for research, and here he is just hit with all these flash click here, click here, and now he's clicked yes and now it's coming up as notification so we had to sit down with them and say the internet is a dangerous place Mm. this is how you use it so most of these kids aren't intentionally going out to look for these things but these things are coming to them and once it's there they just click and if some of their friends have clicked and gone beyond and their parents aren't monitoring their device usage then your child is automatically exposed to the stuff it's pretty scary and it really does mess up how they view sex as a concept, yes. how they view just a woman's body as a Correct. concept. It's so messy. And as a parent, now I'm constantly have to, having to play this precautionary role of, okay, if you're exposed to this, stop because it means that you have to watch every little single thing. And back to AI essentially taking on that role of the primary relationship. Absolutely, yes, it's already happening. These children are already being taught by their devices, by their phones. These are the, they, they live in this world that is in the phone. Their virtual reality is becoming their yeah. reality. And I'm guck scared. And I think that's understandable. And I mean, you know, I think it was Elon Musk who said, we've all become cyborgs. What are you worried about, you know, me planting a chip in your brain? He said, we're all cyborgs. We've got an electronic attachment to our hands but wherever prof, we go. But let's go back to LeBung's issue here. She's, yes. a, she's a mom who's trying to do the right thing. Yep. And this technology is actually not helping her. No, it's on making, the contrary. It's, it's making enabling. it really horrible for, for parents to try and navigate. The kids yeah. are going to be exposed to stuff they shouldn't be at a very young age, which is going to mess them up. Yeah. Well, look at, look at the age at which our children are being given cell phones. Yeah. And I mean, what you're doing without realizing it is you're giving them access to a very powerful technology mm. that you yourself as an adult have not necessarily fully understood or mastered. Exactly. So you, it's, 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 mm. it's like uh, uh, putting them, you know, giving them the code for nuclear weapons, you know. 
it's just so power. All right. Maybe that's an extreme. I mean, maybe, example. maybe because people say there are these programs that'll help parents to kind of keep. And I've but, got those all, but, but still. Google serves up ads with like titties. Boom, boom, boom. That is just, mm. it's, it's gross misconduct on their part. And so in talking about pornography, the average age at which the youngster is getting exposure to that is 11. And so, you know, you, you're kind of like, whoa. You don't know what's going on at 11. You have no well, cooking clue what no. that is. But imagine that's your first exposure. Mm. That's, that's your first mm. exposure. And then they'll grow up. And let's say they're now 18, which you'd think, oh, well, okay, whatever you see is your responsibility. 18-year-olds don't know what the hell they're doing. They still don't and know. And also this, all this, uh, this porn and everything is going to ruin whatever relationships they have in the future. Mm. Exactly. bound that's- to make them... Weird. Mm-hmm. And it affects boys and girls. Yeah. Definitely. In different ways, right? Exactly. Because it's defining roles, actually. And this is just how it is. So I think, again, you know, that was an episode. But I want to come back to the 12 steps because, I mm. mean, childhood sexual abuse will come. Yeah, the 12 steps is interesting because, I mean, my question to David Webb and I, I'm, I'm you know, David's a good friend and, 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 and colleague, and he's very forthright and very knowledgeable. So I always enjoy having him as a, as a guest. And I, you know, I, I posed the question. I said, well, you know, the 12 steps, as much as it's kind of linked with alcohol, is that mm-hmm. not just if you look at the 12 steps and you go through the 12 steps, isn't that just a way of living in mm. terms of, 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 of life in general? You know, it's always been associated with addiction and, and, and alcoholism. It's obviously moved beyond that. Um, but there are basic principles in there. And I think one of them, which, which is very important, is, is the moral inventory where you actually look at yourself. And you think, who am I? What am I? Because, you know, that kind of flows into what course of action you should take in terms of yourself and others who you may have wronged. Mm. So the, I mean, we, we didn't have enough time really, because you could take each step and devote an episode to the sort of meaning and the interpretation of the 12 steps, um, step by step. And, and, and it's, 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 you know, when they talk about working the program, that's, I think to some extent what they're talking about, but it's detailed. It's not, it's not quick and easy. You don't just read them and say, yep, got that. Move on. Mm. All right. Another one. Cause I, I do have to rush us. Otherwise, okay. you're gonna no, run no, out no, of no problem. Here. So another one is psychiatry and, uh, sorry, poverty and mental illness. Oh, because yeah. this is, if you look at, you know, a first world country yeah. like the US, for example, yeah. the, there is an enormous correlation between the number of homeless people and the, the, the epidemic of mental illness in those cities. Yeah. And these are good cities, supposedly yeah. good in inverted commas. They've got welfare programs. They've got soup kitchens. They've got places for people to stay overnight and they've got uh, supposedly good policing and all of this stuff. Yet you've got this absolute unbelievable wave of homelessness yeah. and it's all linked to mental health. Well, and giving these people houses is not going to solve the problem. No, no. Well, I mean, you have to treat if there's illness you treat, sure. but I mean, just as a, you know, anecdote, I was in Los Angeles back in the sort of late eighties. Yeah. And, um, I, in those days, was catching the Greyhound bus. I'm not sure if anybody catches Greyhound buses in America anymore, but you meet a lot of interesting people on the Greyhound bus. Sure. But I think you meet them before you get onto the bus when you walk into the Greyhound bus station. Mm. Because when I walked into the bus station in Los Angeles, I had to wade through a sea of crazy people yeah. who were clearly, I mean, I hadn't done psychiatry yet, but I, you know, even I could recognize, hang on a sec. Something's these, not good These here. guys yeah. are not well. So I got onto the bus. We leave and as we're 
departing the bus station, I look to my right and I see this row of tents on the pavement. And I thought, what the hell is going on? And I suddenly realized these were homeless people. Sure. I'd never seen that actually. And then eventually I got to the Port Authority in New York and there was exactly the same. I had to wait. And, and it's like nobody was even looking at these individuals. In fact, downtown Los Angeles, I felt like I was in some kind of dystopian movie. There were just people walking around muttering to themselves, yeah. throwing things around. And, I, 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 and I'd been warned before I went into Los Angeles because I had to go to the Greyhound bus station to change my ticket. And the guys at the, where I was sitting to catch the bus to get into Los Angeles said, get in, go, get out. Mm. It's crazy down there. So this mm. was in the late 80s. Mm. And things, I think, have not necessarily gotten much better. So the issue of homelessness, yes, I think, I mean, that's, that's something which we do need to look at. And, and specifically, it's about poverty and yeah. the link between poverty and, and, and mental illness. And I have two very good guests and a third guest, actually. The third guest, um, Danny, he, he, he runs an organization called Ladles of Love. And when I first went onto the website, I thought it said Ladies of Love. <laughs> Prof. And I, yeah, no, exactly. I thought to myself, what? wow, that's what? really, that's doing a lot for the homeless. What, or, what organization have I stumbled into here? No, he's, he's amazing. He, he provides hundreds of thousands of meals every week for homeless people. And, and, and John Parker. And in fact, this t-shirt that I'm wearing that says normal, uh, that comes from John. And he had an organization that he worked with. I think it was called the Sunshine Foundation. He'll correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. But essentially the Sunshine, that foundation was about empowering people who have disabilities and mental illness to give them gainful employment and work, working on a farm, creating produce, which they use. So I mean, you know, so this, it's, not, it's not having things because a lot of people imagine even very adjust, well adjusted. Uh, and I'm again, normal sane people think that if you just have all the resources that you need, yeah. you will, it'll help your mental illness come back down to earth. The, the two are not necessarily linked. It's got more to do with having a reason to get up in the morning, yeah. having a purpose. Oh no. Well, that's, you see, <laughs> you were coming back to the issue of spirituality and I mean, spirituality and meaning go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so you've just actually, st you, you're a very spiritual person, Gary. I just don't think he knows it. <laughs> no, he doesn't know it. He, he speaks I'll take it. it. Like his spirit goes over it. and speaks, but he's sure. just not aware of how powerful a spirit no, is. No, no. So I think the issue of, 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 of the fact is that mental illness can lead to poverty and many people in poverty have untreated mental illness. Mm. And so the question is, where do you intervene? Mm. And I think one of the fundamental issues around poverty alleviation is treating those with mental illness. Mm. And, you know, the government talks a lot about poverty alleviation. Well, where's the money for mental illness mm. and for mental health? So suddenly you have to move from being a clinician to a politician because you start to see. And, and, and so... I've always understood that as, as a psychiatrist, there is a side to you that needs to be politically aware. Sure. And you also need to be something of an activist, not necessarily on a national scale, but within the confines of your immediate environment to get the best for your patients. So I think when we talk about poverty alleviation, I want, you know, people to be thinking, hmm, we need to make sure that 
mental illness is something that is actually dealt with. And, and this is a little bit distinct from mental health. That's a whole other discussion. But the issue of, of sufficient resources to treat those who need treatment is actually a contributor to poverty alleviation. And so I think that's where the episode comes in. And again, we come back to another theme, social determinants of mental health. It's not that poverty per se causes mental illness. I think one has to be careful. We're not saying that that is the case, but there's certainly a link. Mm-hmm. Well, we've only scratched the surface um, of, of what you've dealt with in these episodes. We, we talk about aging, which is something a yes. lot of people are, are dealing with. Loneliness. There's we've just done that one, yeah. People talk about an, an epidemic Demic, of yep. loneliness mm-hmm. as Correct. well. You know, there's all these people, there's all this connection, but it's all fake. Right? Sure, sure. And people are feeling lonely. Mm. And there's so many other things that you uncover. I mean, you could carry on doing the show for a hundred years. You wouldn't run out Jeez. of material. Maybe. Mm. Very cool show. <laughs> Very cool. That's kind it of is. you. It is. Prof, I mean, you've done so many shows. Fourth season, where the yes. seasons yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a lot of stuff that you've yeah. um, explored. What's been like the most surprising thing? Or maybe like the, sh- the thing that shocked you, even after all your years of experience and all the different things that you've come across and the different people that you've spoken to. Is there anything that still shocks you to this day where you're like, oh, what? How? It's an interesting question because I, I can't. I think within the context of certain episodes, I yeah. might sort of sit back and say, hmm, interesting. But the, <laughs> that's the calm psychiatrist side yeah. of says, hmm, interesting, hmm. as opposed to, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? So I, I don't think there's anything uh, specific. I think, though, that everything that we deal with has a potential shock factor. Sure. Because these are real hard truths. And I think that that is the way ultimately towards true healing is dealing with truths. And I think that uh, that's one of the themes really. And that's why I chose or have to, that's why I've chosen a lot of the issues which are, which are difficult issues and maybe not ones that are necessarily thought of within the context of psychiatry, mm. but actually you're seeing that psychiatry is a truly biopsychosocial discipline. And I that's think that, you know, we need to look at the social determinants of our health, both mental and physical. And let's find the best way to, to, to get through all of this stuff. Yeah. This may be the challenge of yes. this generation. Other generations have had uh, sometimes more difficult, sometimes less difficult challenges. Yes. Who knows? But this is our thing. And mental health is front and center. And mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. No. Right? It's not I a mean, bad thing at all. Lebang Flax, I mean, you probably don't have, a day goes by where mm. someone doesn't bring up the subject of mental health, sure. whatever it might be. Sure. And the show is great because you, Prof, you get very granular on it, which is nice. Mm. Well, I think that's the beauty of it is that we actually have meaningful discussions and with, 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 with really good guests. I mean, I'm, 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 I've really not ever had a guest that I didn't respect and like. Otherwise I wouldn't that's have brilliant. invited them. Mm. Um, and, and, and yes, we do get granular and we don't finish everything. I mean, often at the end of an episode, I'm saying, geez, I wanted to discuss this, that, that, yeah. that, that, you know, and then I always try to leave people with something to, to kind of think about right at the very end. I come in with a quote and, uh, yesterday's one was quite interesting. I won't say anything. People will have to listen. <laughs> to the one on All right. Well, yeah, take a take a look. Uh, Prof's uh, season four is yep. on cliffcentral.com, but you can get it on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Spotify. wherever you get your podcasts. And it's brought to you by um, Adcock Ingram, sponsors of Brave. Great, great show, great mm. season, great mm. series. Uh, and a great host. Thank you, Prof. Thank, Thank you, Prof. Thank you for Thanks, hosting Prof. me. Thank you. Good to meet all of you. It always, see feels, you again. always feels like when we start talking to you, you could keep going for five hours. Literally. But, oh, I'm just loquacious. 
Word of the day. I did notice that you turned your timer on, which means we now owe you what a couple of thousand rand for a couple of time. But thank you, Prof. Chris. My pleasure. Paul Zabo, what a pleasure to have you here.